friends. Welcome back to another episode of In No Hurry. I'm your host, Cole Douglas Claiborne. So happy to be back with you guys for another episode. The music that you're hearing, as always, is from my friend Ryan Allwart. Super grateful for him letting us use this music each week. Hey guys, if you have not checked it out, yesterday I put out a blog slash podcast episode just trying to offer up some perspective in dealing with what is going on in our world right now. There's just a lot of fear and a lot of panic because a lot of things that we're so used to have now been taken away from us. Sports are being canceled, concerts are being canceled or postponed, and it's hard to deal with. It's hard to make sense of that. And so I tried to offer up some thoughts about how I'm dealing with it and the perspective that I'm taking. So I'd love for you guys to check that out. If you want to listen to the podcast, it's already out. If you want to read those words, it's on my blog at coldclayborn.com. would love for you guys to check that out. But this week, I'm super excited about this episode because my guest is author Barnabas Piper, who has one of my favorite books that I've read this year, Help My Unbelief. It's such a topic that hits so close to home. Barnabas is the author of several books, and he's the son of John Piper, who is a prominent author and pastor that many people are familiar with. And I really just appreciated his perspective on this topic of doubt, especially coming from somebody who is the son of a prominent, well-known pastor. And so we got to talk about his other book, Pastor's Kid, and just about how he and his church are dealing with uh, the damage that happened in Nashville from the tornadoes a couple weeks ago, and now the growing needs in their community with this coronavirus. And so we talked about a lot of stuff. I really appreciated his perspective on a lot of this. I've already put a lot of this content out on my website just because I felt like it was so timely and pertinent to what's been going on. So feel free to check all that out. But I just think that this is a a timely topic. You know, we had Robin Dance on a couple weeks ago talking about her book that largely focuses on this same topic. And I just think that this is something, it's been on my heart for a couple of years. And I just know that there's people out there that are going to be blessed by this conversation. And I really hope that you'll go pick up this book. He just revised it and released the new revised edition earlier this year. And so I really recommend that you guys go out and check that out. Look, y'all, I know the world is crazy right now. And we don't really even know what's going to happen week to week sometimes even day to day at this point. So I just hope that this show can provide uh, some levity from all that and just some normalcy to your week. So thanks for listening and I hope you guys enjoy this conversation with Barnabas Piper. Well, Barnabas, thanks for joining my show. Um, It's great to meet you a couple months ago and and talk to you then as well. But uh, I I obviously, I really loved your book, Help My Unbelief and enjoyed getting to know you uh, in our, in our brief conversation since then. So yeah, thanks for joining the show. Happy to have you. Definitely. I uh, appreciate you having me on. It's always uh, always nice to sit down and converse with a fellow podcaster. <laughs> yeah, we can talk about that a little bit. You got your own podcast, The Happy Ranch. We can get into that a little bit. Um, but your this book helped my unbelief. Very, um, very timely and important topic for me personally, because this is a topic that I have lived with for about a couple years and i noticed that you posted something about robin dance's book the other day and i I got to have her on my podcast recently talking about her book and this this idea of doubt and unbelief has something that you know has been in my heart and on my mind for several years now and i guess from for your perspective you know where did this how, how did this book come to be and how did you know that this was one that you wanted to and needed to write yeah, so the book's actually a few years old and then was re-released in January, which is kind of a story in and of itself. But um, it, so I think I, I think it published originally in 2015, which it's in in book years is like saying it published in 1915. Um, <laughs> but uh, it it actually was born out of writing my first book. So the first book I wrote was called The Pastor's Kid, and it was you know it is what it sounds like. It's a very specific sort of. It's not a memoir, just sort of a reflection on the challenges that kids who grow up in ministry homes face. So the idea being to help pastors see these things better, to help fellow pastors' kids navigate them better, and then to help the church understand kind of what the the pastor's family needs. But as I was writing that book, I began to realize that a lot of my challenges as a pastor's kid, so I was, my dad retired from the pastorate on my 30th birthday, so I had a fair amount of experience at it. Um, but a lot of my uh, challenges were much more universal Christian challenges than they were pastor's kid only. Because in terms of questions about what do I really believe? What are what are the things that have been handed to me? 
What are the things that I've never actually thought about, but I've just sort of absorbed? And and a lot of a lot of doubt questions are born out of things like that for kids who grow up in Christian homes, and then recognizing that doubt is a lot bigger than that. And there's there's intellectual questions, there's suffering related questions, you know, the, just the why God kinds of questions. You know, those are very pertinent f- for everybody at, at some point in life. And so it, it kind of was born out of that. And uh, and then a little bit out of how God walked me through handling those questions, using his people, using his word to, to guide me to a place of genuine faith um, through questions, as opposed to kind of shunning questions or squishing questions or kind of... The thing that we often have in the church where questions are sort of anathema or they're, you know, we, we, we quarantine them, so to speak, to, to use the word of the day. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, and instead looking at questions as an, an actual means to grow into faith and the thing that the Holy Spirit uses in our lives. So that was kind of the backstory of how it came about and realizing also that like, I'm not an, I'm not an apologist in, in the formal sense, you know, I'm not going to sit down and have a. I'm not going to have the ability to have a, a pointed worldview argument with somebody or a pointed existence of God argument, but neither are most people. So we can come at doubt from, from a different perspective, leaning into the word of God as the answer to our questions. Yeah. You, you mentioned your father who obviously anybody listening to the show, I'm sure is familiar with your father, John Piper, prolific writer, longtime pastor. And I don't, I mean, I think, I think the doubts that you, and you wrote about this, obviously the doubts that you experienced, I think probably would bring a lot of pressure to anybody who's a pastor's kid. Did it bring any sort of extra pressure given the prominence that your father held, you know, that your, you know, your family was well known, your father was well known. And for you to say, I'm actually having doubts at times. And, you know, obviously it led to your stronger faith, but I guess, you know, there's a lot of people that maybe when they have those doubts, they don't want to talk about it. And, you know, I don't, did did you feel any sort of added pressure given who your father was? I think I did to a degree because a lot of where things sort of came to a head for me in terms of what what I might call a crisis of faith, which was also a crisis of obedience for me. I mean, it was kind of a both and is what do I believe? Why do I believe it? Is it worth it to follow these things? And that all came about because of some some sins in my life that, that God was dealing with. And that was all in my mid 20s. And so I was I was out of the home. So growing up, I didn't think of myself as the son of a prominent pastor. I just thought of myself as the right. son of our our pastor. This is just the pastor of our church. But then I went to went to Wheaton College, which is the same school my parents went to. Um, they didn't put any pressure on me. I loved my time at Wheaton. But also that was kind of when I began to realize, like, oh, he's a name in a lot of places. Um, so there was some added pressure uh, there in the sense of um, just in the sense of it's one thing to struggle with doubt in the eyes of your parents, in the eyes of your church. It's another thing when people are constantly telling you, but but your dad thinks this. I still get that on yeah. Twitter today, probably twice a week. So I tweet something and somebody goes, well, what would your dad think? I'm like, he's on Twitter. Ask him. Um, <laughs> and and so there, there's still that element because his his ministry is so widespread. And I, I want to clarify, my parents didn't put added pressure on me because of my dad's prominence. My right. dad's my dad's ministry has not played a role in how they've interacted with me as their son, which I'm profoundly grateful for. Right. Um, so it's always the external thing. But at the same time, I think even that is something that God used because it was an additional layer of this needs to be worked through to arrive at a place of confidence in the Lord. So the where I am in my Christian faith now, which you know, it's for all of us, it's a process and it's an ongoing, sanctifying, growing thing, is no longer like that. I have I have gotten to the other side of, am I gauging this according to what John Piper thinks, or am I gauging this according to what Jesus thinks, which is what my dad would want me to do anyway. Like he right. doesn't want to be my standard for morality or faith in God's sovereignty or whatever. He wants scripture to be that. And so to have come out the other side of that puts me in a spot of even more spiritual security, I guess, because because I understand that my relationship was with Christ and this other stuff is sort of extraneous. Yeah. What was that process like where you were, you mentioned in your mid-20s, and that was about, you know, my, my if you want to call it, crisis of faith was brought on by 
a tragedy. I, I think I talked to you about this a little bit, but a guy who I was close to was killed in a car wreck along with some of his family members. And for me, that was, I guess, the first time that I realized not that the fragility of life was what it was because my mother, my mother passed away when she was 49, but it just was the first, I guess the first time that I really experienced a true tragedy that yeah. was a tragedy in the sense of the word, you know, and I just kind of realized like, man, you could, you could serve God your whole life and you could still serve, have the same faith that somebody else could and just be killed. And it was like, that was when I, I had all of these questions like, well, why does this happen? Why does that happen? Why does God allow this happen? And so yeah. that was, you know, that period, I think, it was a very dark period, but then it catapulted me into when I would, I, I guess, a, a more attentiveness during sermons, a more attentiveness whenever I would read scripture, because it was bringing a curiosity about things that I didn't have before. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I guess the process of whenever you realize that you were going through this crisis of faith, you know, to where you ended up on the other side with the stronger faith, what did, I guess, kind of in summary, what did that process look like for you? I mean, was it something similar where it was like, just being in the word more, trying to find out more answers or, you know, what did it look like for you? Um, it, it really wasn't answer driven for me because part of my problem was that I had answers that I didn't know if I believed. So growing up in the background that I did, which was my parents and our church were so biblically faithful in terms of, in terms of being in the word and teaching us lessons. And my dad is a theologian and I, and I, I thrive in a theological context. Like if the, I don't struggle to understand and to kind of swim in those waters. It's just kind of the, the, you know, I'm, I'm the child of my parents. So, um, <laughs> but I didn't have the, the rooted identity in Christ that makes those things come alive and so it was there was sort of like weaponized knowledge as opposed to as opposed to this this wealth of of information that God had given me to grow me. I mean, he had given it to me. I just wasn't in a position to use it. So for me, finding more answers is not what I needed. Um, specifically, I needed to I needed to, to come back around to what's underneath this. What is this? What is this for? And so when I was maybe 26, just shy of 26, something like that. No, maybe 27. I can't remember. Mid twenties. Um, I lost a job because of some very poor decisions on my part. Uh, I was working at the time for an elder of our church that I went to. And, and so kind of my whole life, all of the things that were important in my life kind of crumbled at the same time. Cause I had this good job. I was helping to do student ministry at this church and and all of it collapsed because of my own my own sins and um and the people of the church were involved in it because they they you know are the ones who had to fire me so so again i see god's hand at work here because he was not letting me walk away from this unscathed it couldn't just sort of brush under the rug and so it began a, a sorting process of how did you get here? What do you really believe? Of all of the things that you have claimed to believe, that you've taught to students, whatever, like what are the ones that define you and what doesn't? What the tipping point for me came when a, a mentor of mine, I think I write about this in the book, but a guy named Wayne Martindale, he was one of my professors at Wheaton and one of the elders at our church who, who was walking with me through this as uh, sort of a mentor slash like, I'm going to keep you in line, you young punk. Um, but very graciously, because he's a really kind person. Um, he he just said, you need to get into uh, you need to get into scripture and read the gospels in a different way than you have before. So mm-hmm. do your best to take everything you think you know, set it on a shelf. You're not you're not throwing it away, but you're just ignoring it for the time being. And just start taking note of what you see of who Jesus is. So I, I don't know what that means, but here we go. Um, yeah. So I started and I made it through Matthew and I made it halfway through Mark and I got to Mark 9, which is the story in the middle of Mark 9. You see the story of um, the father bringing a demon possessed son to Jesus to for healing. And it's this amazing interaction where the father says to Jesus, if you can help us, would you? And Jesus says, if you can, anything is possible for the one who believes and the father's response is, I believe, help my unbelief. Mm-hmm. And a light bulb went on for me. And it wasn't this thing where like all of my doubts washed away, but it was like a three degree trajectory change where all of a sudden I was like, oh, there's a, there is room for saying if and room for saying help my unbelief 
even as we're as we're talking to Jesus. So this is the Jesus who I have I have not been in touch with, the one who welcomes those who aren't totally confident, who are kind of screw ups, who say if and who say help my unbelief. But then I also saw that there was I mean this was an act of faith by the Father. You know he goes to Jesus and and so it it began it became a paradigm shifter for me in realizing that those kinds of questions, the the lack of complete and total confidence, those are not things that kill faith. Those are things we right. take to Jesus, and and he responds as needed. He did it for Thomas. He did it for Peter. He did it over and over and over again. And so um, that that was a that was a transformative thing for me. So it wasn't a hunting for answers as much as it was recognizing that Jesus absorbs and and responds to and accepts our questions when we bring them to Him. Yeah, we're, we're actually going through Hebrews in my church right now. We've been talking a lot about this, a lot about. Uh, this very topic and our pastor has said several times you know like there's a difference between drifting away and fading away or falling away because Mm -hmm. one you're going to the lord for answers one you're actively going away from the lord for answers and he said it a little bit differently but that was kind of a a summation there and and he, he kept going back to this verse here hebrews 4 14 through 16 where he says let us hold firmly to the faith we percept uh, professed and he kept you know basically was saying go back to the things that you originally professed whenever you claimed that you wanted to be a child of the, of, of, of god like you wanted yeah. to profess your faith in him and so he talked a lot about kind of the idea of you know think about how a boat is anchored and even when the boat is anchored it could still be drifting and so he basically was saying you need to be moving toward the you could be anchored in the lord but you still need to be moving toward the Lord. And whenever you start moving toward the Lord, he moves for you as well. And so I thought that was yeah. kind of a good thing to think like, you know, you can be, you can be rooted in the faith, but if you're not moving toward the Lord, you're going to, even whenever you're anchored in a boat, your boat still drifts with the water. So I thought that was kind of a, a good example too. I mean, is that, a, did you have any sort of similar experience with that too? I mean, I like that, that, that verse is, you know, Hebrews has really stuck out to me whenever it yeah. comes to this topic as well. So I don't know. I mean, do you, did, Anything with that? I think Hebrews 11, 1, the definition of faith, that, you know, just the, he, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen, was one that I came around to later and found a lot of comfort in because it's a definition of faith that it echoes what the Father did in Mark 9. You know, he comes and says, I believe, help my unbelief. So there's confidence and a lack of, a lack of confidence in one sentence. And then... Hebrews 11.1 1 says it's the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. So you have assurance and conviction, but then you also have hoped for and not seen. Like Those are the experiences we have. Like The, the times when we feel like our faith is weak is the not seen. Like I don't see what God is doing here. I don't understand why, how. Well, faith is confidence in the midst of those, and it's confidence because of like what you just said, because of of what we did hold fast to when we said mm-hmm. we were going to follow Christ, what we have seen God do in the past, and what we know of His character. And I have found that to be uh, really, really comforting because in my mind, I still wrestle with the idea that when you have faith, your doubts go away. And I don't think that's the case at all. I think faith is simply a a Christian response to doubt. Mm-hmm. So it is, what do we do with our doubts? Not, we don't have doubts. Because I think doubts are inevitable. Whether it's a, especially the experiential ones. You know, I was talking to talking to somebody I know recently, and they're just in a very uncertain job situation. And she was just saying, I'm trying to trust God in the middle of this. And it's hard because I just don't see what he's doing. Well, that sounds like the conviction of things not seen. The conviction right. that God is doing something when we don't see it. So that is faith. So she felt like she was lacking faith, and I'm hearing her talk and saying, that sounds like faith. Yeah. And so I found I find a lot of comfort in that because it just takes the burden off of us to know everything, to have all the answers, to have 100% confidence. But again, to use your, to use your word picture, there's an anchor there that keeps us from drifting far. We, we are, yeah. We're anchored to to what we know of God, and then we, we just can't go very far once we're anchored. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think for me, I, as a journalist, my problem was that 
you know, I'm, I'm geared naturally to want answers to everything. Yeah. And so when, when that, when that thing happened with me, not understanding certain things, or for instance, like that was the first time that I learned the idea that, you know, you're married to somebody on earth. You're not necessarily married to them in that same sense in heaven. I had just never been taught that. Yeah. And I was about, to, I was about a month away from pro- proposing to my wife. And I was like, well, then what's the point of even getting married? And like I was going through all this stuff and it was like, I wanted answers to everything. And, uh, you know, ultimately I had to arrive at a place of basically being like, I don't know the answers and I don't really want to know the answers because that's to me, that's the, that's the beauty and the nece- the necessity of faith is to basically say, I don't, I don't know everything and I can't know everything. And so I think I heard somebody put it this way too, where, you know, if you get to a point where you feel like you've understood everything about God, then he's really not God to you anymore because, yeah. you know, like the part of it is the mystery. And if you feel yeah. like if you get, first of all, you're foolish, if you think you understand everything about God. And I think you put it this way perfectly in your book. And it's one of my favorite quotes of your book where you said, we're finite beings trying to understand an infinite God. Like there's no way that we can do that. And mm-hmm. I just think that that's like, yeah, we're not even designed to do that. So, yeah, and I, and I think that the difference between faith and rebellion is once you have that realization, even like whether it's a cognitive thing or like a visceral in your gut thing, when you realize that you can't understand God, do you say, therefore, I won't understand God? Or do you say, therefore, I will trust God? Right. And I mean, that's the difference. That's the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is the are you saying there's a God who I cannot fully understand, therefore I should trust him? Or are you saying there's a God I don't understand, therefore I can't trust him? Yeah. And and I think, you know, you and I would believe that scripture gives us all evidence as well as just the millions and hundreds of millions of transformed lives around the world that show that there's plenty of evidence that that God is worth trusting even when we we encounter those I just don't understand times, which is all the time. It's regular. Yeah. Well, I want to shift gears and move into, I guess, kind of talking about, you know, you live in Nashville, and uh, everybody pretty much knows Nashville was hit pretty hard by a pretty devastating tornado about a week and a half ago. And um, you're, you're, you specifically, you know, you posted a lot about this. Your church, tons of churches in the area have responded well to help with the relief efforts. Mm-hmm. You know, what has that been like for somebody living in Nashville and seeing this every day? You know, we see what we do on the news and online, but you know, you're messaging me and you're just saying it's so bad in some areas. And even the pictures probably don't tell all the stories that yeah. you see, you know, what has this week and a half been like for that community and, and how have churches responded? Yeah, it's um. so I guess it was Monday evening into Tuesday of, of last week at the time we're recording this. Um, you know, I woke up about 3 a.m. to a text message on Tuesday morning of somebody out of state saying, are you OK? I was like, why wouldn't I be OK? Because I'm about 15 or 20 miles away from where the path of the tornado was. So well out of, the, of harm's way. But very quickly, you know, within a couple hours, realized this is I mean, it it was it was really, really damaging. Um, and so our some staff members from our church. So I'm, I'm on staff at Emanuel, Nashville. It's a church on the on the west side of downtown. Um, just outside of downtown. And some staff members of ours just quickly got in touch with a church that was very close to the path of the storm, kind of a sister church of ours called the Axis Church in the Germantown neighborhood, and said, what can we do? And they said, we need water, we need generators, we're setting up a, a relief station for whatever that means. Because there was a huge amount of, we don't we don't really know, but we know that there are people without food, without water, without power. So, So we loaded up uh, trucks with those things, a couple pickup trucks, a couple SUVs drove over there. Um, and then from there, I, I was in a position to help coordinate our church's efforts. And I think, man, the list of things, the list of things that I saw God's hand at work in is so, is so long. I'm, I'll try to summarize. Um, first, the ways that churches like ours were able to connect with groups who already have deep roots in some of the hurt neighborhoods. So the, the, in, in, the, in, the, in Nashville proper, there was three areas that were hit very hard. One is East Nashville, one is Germantown, and one is North Nashville. The first two are fairly well-off areas, and, um, and, but North Nashville is one of the poorest and most ignored parts of Nashville. Well, 
our church had recently developed a relationship with a ministry who has pretty deep roots there. So we were able to connect with them. It's a ministry called Corner to Corner. If anybody wants to look them up, support them financially, they do phenomenal work and they do it year round. It's job creation. It's, it's after school programs. It's they've developing entrepreneurs, all sorts of different stuff and all very explicitly in the name of Christ. So we partnered with corner to corner and they were able to be our eyes and ears because as a church, who's not in that community specifically, we would have run the risk of, of, uh, doing something that took dignity away from people who were victims. We would have run the risk of just not using our resources well of any number of things. And instead we had this, the wisdom of people who know the neighborhood, who know the area saying, go here, talk to this person, drop the supplies off here. We have these needs. Then the second thing is, so I was, I was the coordinator for this, for our church and I felt like I just got dropped into the steering wheel of a car that was already going down the freeway. And all I needed to do was make some adjustments to which lane we were in. Because the momentum that God's people brought, just readily, just jumping into the fray, coming and saying, what can we do? What do you need? Was It made it, it, it was phenomenal, their readiness to be neighbors to other people in Nashville. And then on top of that, all the areas that were hit that we don't have any direct, I, I, I was in the North Nashville area primarily, but you go out to the east suburbs, they were hit very hard. And then you head further out east towards Cookville, that's where the majority of the, the fatalities were. So I think right now there's confirmed 26 to 30 dead oh, wow. from these storms. 22 plus of them are in are out towards Cookville. And so to see those churches mobilizing and to, you know, to see how social media, which is often a very acidic and hurtful and problematic thing, all of a sudden pivoted to seeing people connect with other people to say, all right, we're bringing volunteers because you posted a need. Yes, I will bring a truck full of water. I will bring a truck full of diapers for this women's and children's center, all sorts of stuff like that. And then, I mean, even lastly, just... We had multiple churches from around the country contact us and say, hey, we've seen seen the damage and we've seen what you've been posting. How can we give financially uh, to support these efforts? And so we were able to have a, a fund set up that's dedicated specifically to tornado relief. And, and then a lot of that money we've been able to start putting towards supporting other churches. So things like covering the insurance deductibles of a church in the damaged neighborhoods who has yeah. a tiny budget, but does great work. So we were able to come along inside and say, we will, we will relieve this cost from you because of God's people's generosity. And so, yeah. um, I feel, I feel like God put me in a place to do work, but also like just, there's a profound amount of just being a spectator of the things that God is doing that no person could have, could have kind of, coordinated or created those opportunities. The, yeah, I think the last thing I would just say about it is that we're turning the page now. The storms aren't behind us. It's just that we're in the costliest and long-term part of rebuilding now. Yeah, where, a, yeah. So it's the, how are we helping the people whose homes have, were, were cut in half, whose homes are just gone, who lost loved ones, who their businesses were damaged. So there's still a significant financial need. There's still a significant need for particular kinds of laborers, you know, to like contractors, roofers, electricians, plumbers to like rebuild houses. Um, and so, you know, we'll still keep putting word out on things like that. And uh, I don't know if any of your listeners are are inclined to give. If you go to emmanuelnashville.com and you go to the giving tab, you can find a tornado relief fund. Every dollar that goes to that goes directly into these efforts. It doesn't go into the church budget or anything like that. So, um, and again, there's, there's a lot of ways to give and to serve. Ours is not the only one. It's just the one that I'm most, I'm just closest to it. So it's the easiest one to direct people to. Right. But yeah, it's, uh, it has been, you know, talking about faith and doubt to start this and then moving into this is <laughs> there's a lot of corollaries <laughs> because you have this, this unexplainable, horrific tragedy that took lives, that ruined homes and businesses and displaced people. And you see God's people and a lot of people who aren't believers, just good hearted people pouring in efforts 
and and uh, time and resources. And so there's there's this tragedy and then there's this good, but it doesn't make up for the tragedy. And it does just leave you with a lot of questions, but it also leaves you with a lot of evidence that God's hand is at work. And that's, you know, you, you can't ignore that. Yeah, this is one of the times where you really see the church, collective church, come together for the good of God. And when I was in high school, I think it was like 2006, my hometown got hit by a similarly sized tornado just right through the east side of town and into a pretty wealthy town called Newburgh in Indiana, in southern Indiana. And my church uh, is one of the largest churches in that area. And I remember, you know, we set up our church as a Red Cross spot where people could come and mm-hmm. that you know could sleep on cots and eat and that kind of stuff and you know the, the, there were places where one side of the street the home was destroyed and on the other side the house was perfectly fine and there were people in our in my youth group who completely lost their home and across the street was another person in our youth group their home was completely spared and it made no sense right. and it's just one of those things like you said where there's probably a lot of people asking why why did this happen and how important is it for the church? I mean, you've already talked a lot about this, but just in that context, when you've got people that might be questioning God and saying, why did this happen? Why, in that context, why is it important for churches and Christians to respond in this way specifically? Just, you know, they want to show who God is and the, and the care that Christians have. But, you know, in this moment, you know, it's easy for people to say, I'm just going to stick home and I don't want to mess with that. Why, why should people feel compelled, I guess, to get involved and, and help with these efforts, especially if they're a Christian. Yeah, the one, one of the—so this is an answer to your question. I'm just going to give a little context. Um, we started our church year with a series on biblical hospitality. So the, the we, idea— We did too, looking actually, at, yeah. Looking at, looking at Romans 15, 7, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you, and that's sort of the underpinning. So— just this strong theme of look at how Christ has made a place and then how that transformed people's lives. You look at like the life of uh, Lydia, where she she meets Paul, Paul introduces her to Jesus, and immediately she compels them to come stay with her in her home. Like transformed heart, transformed home, kind of uh, just instantaneously. And And then this hits Nashville. And now, just the day before we're recording this, we found out that Belmont University and Vanderbilt University and probably other schools are kicking students out because of the coronavirus uh, or COVID-19 or whatever we're calling it, um, fears. So now our church has another opportunity to potentially house people or members in our church who, especially those who can't get home, international students and, and those who don't have the means to just immediately return home. And so... There's a, there's a, it's just obvious that God was preparing us and doing the same thing in other churches in entirely different ways um, for this, because this is how the love of Christ is made obvious to people. When you do things that don't make sense to bless other people, it shows, it shows Jesus to them. Now, it helps if you tell them about Jesus, too, because most people don't catch Jesus by accident. You know, there's, there has to be a, like a, a conversation and a proclamation. But, yeah, it's a, it is an, an amazing opportunity to, to be part of it. And I don't, think we should, I don't think we should sort of take on something like hospitality or service and go, what do I get out of it? But there are promised rewards for people who get up, get on board the work of Christ. Just the the richness of satisfaction and peace and the smile of God. And so, yeah, it's going to be costly. Like there's a cost to it. There's a financial cost. There's a time cost. There's an energy cost. But there's a soul reward that's you can't put a dollar amount on it. Right. And and I think those are those are things that we can't ignore either. Like when you do the things that God has asked you to do. He is so proud of you, like a father is proud of a child who, for the first time, cleans his dishes without being asked or whatever. It's just like, you did it. You're, you're getting it. Good job, buddy. It's like that times a billion, you know? Yeah. Um, I think one of the, the hardest parts when a tragedy happens is that there's this wave of generosity right after, the, right after it happens. People want to come right away and help. Well, this is going to take a while to rebuild the, the the cleanup process. The rebuilding process is going to take a while. So while it's great to have people that want to come right now, a couple of weeks after it happened, I think it's important 
to remember that there's going to be a lot of people that still need help months down the road. You know, I mean, did, yeah. does your church kind of have a, a long-term plan set up at all? Or is there, I mean, it, it's, obviously this just happened like yeah. two weeks ago, but in terms of, you know, just looking at it down the road, you know, how, how is, what's the best way to handle that? I've been on a couple of mission trips where we've gone to the Katrina affected areas and even yeah. eight years or so after it, it was like still devastated. So, yeah. I mean, tornadoes are a little, sometimes don't have the, the expansive damage that hurricanes do, but still, I mean, there's people that months from now are going to be in need of things. So how do yeah. we handle that going forward? Um, we're still learning that, to be honest. I think um, if I was to sit here and, and, claim expertise on anything it would be it'd be way out of my depth um it's it's one of those times that we are really really grateful for the partners that god has provided for us so those who were who were in the damaged communities beforehand so fellow churches who know people uh nonprofit organizations who are doing urban renewal and job creation and caring for families because because we, because I don't know, I don't know how to to do right. long term help, but I know that it's essential. So to be able to go to uh, corner to corner, the Axis Church um, is an organization called Maple Built that a couple members of our church are a part of, and these different organizations, and say, what are the needs? What, how can we help? And to put together an ongoing, like that needs to be an ongoing dialogue where they can come to us and say, this family uh, needs this, this business needs this, this organization needs this. And, and for us to be able to then, um, mobilize people and resources in direct response. Um, I think, I mean, I think any church struggles with this figuring out, cause there's the pressure to want to solve all the problems. Like I felt this in the middle of the relief stuff last week, just that. And I, I think it's, I think it's just a lie that Satan tells us to make us feel like failures, but that you're not doing enough. You're not, right. you haven't fixed anybody's problems. But I don't think we're called to fix anybody's problems. I think we're called to be faithful with, um, we're called to be faithful with the opportunities God has given us, and God fixes the things, whatever those things are. So, um, I think I, that 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 that's our long-term strategy right now is have a ongoing, strong relationship with people who know what's going on, and then we can kind of be the behind-the-line supports for them. And then periodically we can put people into the fray because if they say we need five guys who have uh, drywall experience to finish this house, well, we've probably got 15 of those guys at the church. So we can pull, we can do that or a plumber or an electrician or roofing or paving or landscape, whatever it is. <clears throat> and so bringing our people to bear for that too on, on a specific need basis. Yeah, and you, and you mentioned this a minute ago, but now we're looking at a new crisis with the coronavirus. And yeah. um, you mentioned how there's some college students in Nashville that are in need of places to stay. And who knows what needs are going to come out in the next couple of weeks or even months. I mean, we're seeing at the time of this recording, this is Thursday and Wednesday, uh, what was it, March 11th was the day of kind of kind of day of dread where all the news came out with all the cancellations yeah, and Tom the Hanks day of getting cancellations. Yeah. They can cancel culture's heightened moment. But uh, I mean there's so many things that have been going on just in the past week and who knows what this is going to look like a week from now or a month from now. I mean has your church had any kind of preliminary talks about how to handle this or do you have any personal thoughts on how churches can or should mm -hmm handle this this crisis that's starting um we have we've had conversations as a staff and it's been interesting the shift because um none of us are inclined towards panic um some some of that personality wise some of that belief in god's sovereignty so fig and so then for somebody like me who tends to just shrug stuff off like that just right. i don't have a personality that gets worried much it's it's hard for me to respond graciously to panic um However, Same. we are responsible. <laughs> However, as, as as church leadership, we're, we're responsible for the well-being of our people as much as it's up to us. So, what steps can we take to to be conscientious of those who are afraid, and to take reasonable measures to 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 limit things, you know, to limit the spread of this? And it's been helpful to hear reasonable medical heads talk about it, where they're like. Most of you who are reading this are not at risk uh, for it, it, it. But 
you are at risk of being a carrier who then could get it to somebody who's at risk. So the reason we're, we, we recommend things like quarantines or what are they calling it? Social, social uh, distancing. That just sounds like a conscious uncoupling and some other made up <laughs> phrase, but here we are. Um, is because that will limit the spread to the vulnerable. Right. So our medical facilities don't go wrong. All of that makes total sense to me. And and that I think that sounds like treating others the way you would like to be treated. You know, same with washing your hands, same with whatever. Like just that that all makes sense. So we've talked about what does it look like if we get to a place where we need to cancel large gatherings? How do we then shepherd the people in a worship context? Is it groups getting together in each other's homes and we video stream it out, things like that. So, you know, the band and the pastor are at the church streaming and everybody else is in homes, whatever. So we're, we're figuring some of those things out. We have, we've, we've had some great resources passed on to us. Um, from even like, we, we read an article that one of our pastors found from um, persecuted church in China who said, when we, when our churches get shut down, we do it this way. And, this is not persecution, but it, you know, the net effect, if we have to split up and go into homes is, is similar. So, um, I think for me as a leader and for our church leaders, the biggest thing has been figuring out what is a reasonable way to care for people and not just do what we think makes the most sense. Um, so there's an, there's an element of acquiescing, even if we think it's kind of silly, some of it. But there's also a, this is a great unknown. We don't know, like I've never lived through a pandemic of any kind and neither has anybody else my age. Um, and so what does it mean to live through a pandemic? Is it, it what, it, how, you know, I have scenes of like the black death in my mind and like bodies stacked <laughs> in the streets. But I'm like, I think it's just a, I, I, I don't think it's that at all. But the net effect on the economy and on schools, like what happens if they close schools for the rest of the semester? Yeah. Like my kids, I have a 14 and 11 year old. I'm dreading that. I don't want my yeah. kids home for three more months <laughs> and then summer break. That sounds awful for all of us. Um, so there's a lot of those kinds of things that we have not gotten our heads around to figure out. I don't think anybody has. How do you navigate yeah. life when businesses and schools and whatever else are potentially closed and so forth? It's... It is one of those times, and it can sound fatalistic, but it's profoundly true where you say, thank, thank God he's sovereign because I don't understand any of this. Yeah, and I, I've remarked the other day, I, I'm just, I'm very thankful that I'm not in any position to make any sort of decisions on any of this because I, I feel like, you know, anybody who's in a leadership, whether that's a commissioner of a professional sports league or, you know, any any sort of group that has to deal with with cancellations or suspensions, they're going to get flack from people, and it's a it's a pressure packed situation, and it's just like there's no there's no context really for this. Like you said, we haven't really right. lived through this, so there's no precedent to refer to. I mean, we can look at maybe Ebola and Zika as similarities, but there was nowhere near this global impact that this has had to where things are being shut down, and so there's just no way to really know. And you know, we think there, there's people that I know that are studying abroad that can't get back home, and so there's families that are worried, and it's just like. I think part of the panic is just exacerbated where it's like, well, now my kid is over abroad and now they don't, they're not getting home. And then for instance, my, uh, my wife's uncle is stationed in Germany with the air force and he may not be able to get back to America for his daughter's high school graduation in June. And yeah. it's just crazy to think about that. We're here in middle of March and this might be having ramifications into the summer. And so we just, one of those things where I think yeah, as Christians, much like we would with any other, tragedy or major event it's kind of like just be prepared to help in whatever way you can whatever that means you know the kentucky governor here in kentucky um this past week urged churches i guess not urged recommended churches to not meet on sunday and so as far like the time of this recording our church said that they're planning to still meet as normal but right. you know you never know i mean there's What's crazy is here in Kentucky and then Indiana, where I'm from too, like this is obviously not as important, but a high school basketball tournament's going on. And that's a big yeah. deal to a lot of people. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's a chance that that might either get suspended or canceled altogether. And, uh, it, you know, it's just crazy to think about the the ripple effect that this has on like the things that we usually go to to get away from this kind of stuff, you know, entertainment, sports, that is now being affected. And so it's just like 
I tweeted earlier today. I said this feels like we're just living in the plot of a science fiction novel or movie or something. Yeah. It's just it's it's crazy. There's just no precedent it's, for it. So yeah, I, I think I think people need to be very conscientious to separate this from like the World War Z reality, though. Like this is this is a massive life altering thing because of its scope, but it's not the end of the world. Right. Right. I mean, look at this is when it's good to be a student of history. Every pandemic that has ever happened has not ended the world. And some of them have been far worse than this in terms of mortality. Right. Um, this is going to have significant economic, significant. I mean, it's profoundly inconvenient, um, but we'll we'll make it. And, yeah, we don't yeah. know if this is going to last four weeks or four months or like, what what is going to happen here. There's just a lot that's unknown, but it's if we just this this might be a thing that we need to get us out of our own like you've upended my life. I'm I might I disapprove of this. And <laughs> I was wrestling with that yesterday because you know I we get done with our men's Bible study in the evening and I'm I'm working on some stuff to to try to figure out housing for displaced college students. And then I, you know, I get the news that the NBA has suspended their season. And then my first thought is, oh, crap, the baseball season is going to do the same thing. And I was so excited about that starting. And then I had to hit pause and, and be like, do those matter? Do they matter at all? Like, right. not, not as compared to so many other things. So I'm offended that my pleasure and convenience has been interrupted. Right. So maybe this is something that will be really beneficial for a selfish America to, to realize that we can do some things for our neighbors. We can take some, we can, you know, there are going to be those who are really financially impacted because some of us can work from home because the internet. Others, if they don't go to work, they don't get paid. So they need help. There's going to be opportunities in this for us to, to really serve people and to get out of our own uh, self-centeredness. And I think that'll be, I think that could be a, a significant positive outcome of all of this yeah i think it's a great perspective and, and just like you i kind of had to check my emotions you know i'm excited about the baseball season excited about march madness and you know the idea of watching march madness without fans in the crowd was weird and then the idea of watching baseball be played differently was weird too and it's kind of like yeah you got to just check your check your emotions and make sure that you're not focusing on the wrong thing there so um i wanted to switch gears here before we end you just submitted a manuscript for I guess your next book, what can you tell us about that book so far? Yeah, it's uh, it's coming out in October uh, from The Good Book Company. And um, I love that the publisher is named The Good Book Company. I feel like that's a little promise <laughs> on all their books. It's like, nope, I swear it's good. Um, it's called Hoping for Happiness. And it's a book about realistic happiness in a fallen world. So kind of seeking to answer the question in the same way that Ecclesiastes does in a lot of ways. What, what is it real? What is it realistic to expect out of this life with an eye towards eternity, but also like living in a world where a lot of stuff, like we've just talked about a whole mess of stuff that's not good. But then we were just talking about baseball and basketball and, you know, and just that there's this wealth of good things in this world too. So what is it realistic to expect? What does happiness look like? Where do we go wrong when we expect we expect lasting happiness from the wrong things? What does it look like to find pleasure the right way? Just kind of weaving those questions together. It's it's not a super long book. Um, I have the word count in my mind, but that doesn't mean anything to anybody. So <laughs> let's call let's call it a two hundred page book. So it's not super super long. Um, and yeah, I'm excited. Uh, well, that's not true. I'm mostly relieved right now. I will be yeah. excited once I catch my breath. You know, turning in a book is is much more like, oh, I'm glad that's over. It's like finals. Right. And then when you get your grades back, you feel good, hopefully. This is like the turning yeah. in of the final <laughs> paper. You're like, whatever, I'm just glad it's done. But <laughs> I will be excited. And uh, yeah, so October. And, and then between now and then, the pastor's kid will re-release from the Good Book Company as well. So um that's been available, but it'll it's just re-released a little bit of refreshed content, but mostly just kind of putting it back out there from a new publisher and, and reintroducing it. So I'm excited about that as well. Yeah, that's kind of what you did with this uh, Help My Unbelief book. You added a little yeah. bit, revised it a little bit. And um, yeah, I mean, I, 
I'm excited to read your new book. I mean, I, I, I love this book too. And, you know, obviously you said it comes with a good book company, so it's already got the stamp of approval that it's <laughs> right. Great, so they only put out good books. It says so right on the cover. <laughs> they don't, they don't publish bad authors. It's like, yeah, they it's not, it's, yeah, it's not like the eh, book company. This can be brief, but I mean, I got to talk to you a little bit about this whenever I met with you a couple months ago. But if there's any aspiring writers that are listening, you know, what do you, whenever you first started writing books, I mean, what, what are some things that you learned when you first started to now that maybe, you know, you would, you would have liked to have known when you first started? And you worked in, you worked in publishing, yeah. so you, you kind of knew a lot already. But I mean, yeah. for those aspiring writers, I guess, what's kind of some advice that you could give them? I knew a lot more about the publishing process than most people who are aspiring authors would, because that's that had been my that had been my career up to that point. And so I was in publishing for about 14 years, um, and I had been in it for seven or eight when I wrote my first book. So kind of knew the inner workings, but which and that helped me with realistic expectations in terms of a first-time author, what to expect in terms of payment, which is to say not very much. Uh, in terms of in terms of marketing, publishers ha have the capacity to do some things that an author doesn't, but they can't they can't make a bestseller. They can they can put whatever resources they have set aside for that book. And again, for a smaller book or a new author, it's usually not that much, and they can get it some places. But a lot of that rests on the author. Um, and and then sales numbers. Just to, to when I left publishing. Um, or last I heard maybe a year or two ago. And if you sold 3000 in your first year, 3000 copies in your first year, um, as a first time author, you, you were well above average. Most books sell less than that. So that's not a big number. And I think most authors would be disappointed by that. So those are just the kind of things from an expectation standpoint. Like if you do 5,000 in your first year and they pay you and you get paid a little bit like that's just logistically financially speaking that's really good it's a good yeah. start on the on the authoring side though that's where I had the steepest learning curve because I knew the publishing process but I was like I don't know how to write 40,000 words about anything yeah. and so I found that for me outlining was really valuable so First, having just like a chapter outline where each you have a you have a summary of where you intend to go with each chapter. That can be fluid because sometimes you get partway through and realize you need to adjust this thing. Yeah. But it just helps you know what am I covering in this chapter so that I don't repeat it in chapter seven because everybody hates repetitive books and a lot yeah. of Christian nonfiction is super repetitive. Um, but then outlining as you go, so chapter by chapter, I did that by hand. So I have notebooks full of just like. It looks like madness, but it's it's how I outlined the chapters so that when I sat down to type it out, I knew the framework I was working on. Like I was building around a skeleton of, of an idea. I think that was really helpful. The last piece, I mean, I could go on and on and on about this, but the last piece is in the self-promotion category. Um, if you are an aspiring author or a young author, you will feel an enormous amount of pressure to to just sell 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 platform building uh putting my stuff out there putting myself out there being a brand that takes away from the quality of your work um let your work speak for itself so it's one thing to say hey i wrote this thing and i believe in it you should do that don't write something that you're not proud to put in front of people right but Every piece of sharing or marketing you do should be to benefit somebody, not just yourself. Yeah. So it's one thing to say, hey, I wrote this. I think it would be great for people who struggle with this. I wrote this for these people. There's a mission in that. It's another thing to be like, hey, I wrote a book. Look at me. Which is, <laughs> And there, there's a subtle difference, but, but the, their content marketing is great. So, you know, podcast interviews or excerpts or additional articles or quotes – things that help people see what is the material that's that's benefiting um but and yeah and that's a that's a subtle thing but the book the book is the is the important part it's the message you wrote it to to help people to encourage people to challenge people to teach people whatever it is that's the stuff that needs to to stand on its own two feet and your platform just doesn't matter that much um yeah. and so yeah and it 
I, I just would encourage authors to lean into how can I spread the message of, not how can I sell more copies of. Because yeah. if you spread the message, like there, there will be residual sales. If people like it, they'll buy it. And it's not bad to say, hey, I would love it if you bought this. Like it's a request to make. It's reasonable. There's a price tag on this thing. It's it's a it's merchandise. But I think people will know the difference. It's like, is this the marketing that makes you kind of cringe and go, oh, that's a little gross? Or is yeah. it the kind that you go, I appreciate you shared that? Yeah. Yeah. And, I, and I've I've talked to a number of authors about this just because, I mean, I've been trying to do my own research as I'm working on my first book proposal and just trying to learn everything that I can. And it's like, that's refreshing because a lot of what I've heard is, man, your platform is really good. Your, your, your platform is really important. Like you need to get your platform up, your platform up. And I'm like, look, I'm not going to change who I am just to grow my social media numbers. You know, I don't want to, there's a lot of people that know how to do that and know how to maximize their social media. And, and they write, me, I'm like, right. Books. I mean, yeah. If, if you are a platform builder, it means you're not focused on the work of writing. It's very yeah. hard to be good at both. Now, if a platform comes with, because that happens. My dad's a good example. My dad wouldn't know how to build a platform if I handed him $10 million and said, go do everything you can. <laughs> but he, he, had, he is recognizable and has a platform because he focused faithfully on the work of preaching and writing. And a lot of the people we respect most are like that. Um, they, the reason they got big is because they focused on the stuff God gave them to do. God did not ask anybody to build a platform. That's not a thing. That's a man-made yeah. thing, which there is a tension as a young author because publishers will tell you, I'm sorry, I'm not sure we can publish your book. You just don't have a big enough platform, which – just statistically, they're going, it's hard to sell a book if, if you if a lot of people don't know who you are. But I just, I don't think anybody's called to build a platform. I don't think yeah. that's a thing. So I think we're called to preach a message, write a book, write articles, do podcasts, be, be messengers of the things that God has given us. And platforms may or may not come. But if you didn't try to build it, if it goes away, you get to keep being faithful. If you're yeah. there to build a platform that goes away, your purpose went away. And I don't, yeah. I don't think that's real. That's so, that's so good. And it's, that's really encouraging. Cause it's, you know, as I've gone through this process, it's like, I just feel this internal pressure that I'm like, man, I've got to get X amount of followers. Otherwise the publisher is not going to care about my work. Even though I believe in the message that God has called me to write, I believe in my writing abilities. And I'm like, will this even matter if I don't have these numbers? And I kind of had to take the approach that like, if, if somebody's going to value the, the, my social media numbers over the message that I'm writing, then yeah. they're not going to be the people that I want to work with anyway. And that's maybe a narrow-minded way to look at it. But I also am like, you know what? I believe in my own writing. Like I, I went to school for journalism. Like I feel like I have a good writing ability and I believe in the message that I'm trying to communicate. And it's like, man, I got to just trust that. And I think that's a really good reminder that the, the focus has to be on the mission and not yeah. the platform building part of it. Well, and just by context, if you write a book that sells 3,000 copies, you just sold a mega church's worth of copies. Like a, a pastor writes a new sermon every week to preach to 200 people or 50 people or 2,000 people. Like they, every week they're putting out, they're faithfully studying and creating and crafting a message to, to bring God's word to people. If you do that in a book form— you have two things. One, you're probably going to hit more than 50 or 200 people because it just books will get out there more than that. And it'll last. They can pass it along. Somebody discovers that in a year or two or three years. I still hear from people reading something that I wrote four or five years ago, and it feels miraculous to me, but that's how God uses certain things. Yeah. And so I, I think, yeah, we just need to shake ourselves out of the stupor of numbers and say— you know, if I sell 2,000 copies of something, which is a bad sales number in the marketplace, that's a that's a big church worth of people yeah. you just provided encouragement to or a testimony to or whatever. That's if we thought more in those numbers of the who are the individuals, it becomes a lot more. Well, it's a lot more fulfilling too because then when two people email you and say your book was an encouragement, it was worth it. It's worth yeah. it when you get the emails that say your book helped me. And if it's two or 10 or a hundred, like those are, those are meaningful things. And the sales numbers are just, they're a side effect of trying to be faithful. Yeah. That's, that's, a, that's great encouragement. And I think it's great just in general when you like, 
you know, I've, I've written a lot about comparison and just about how that can really destroy people. And I think that's such a great reminder that just do your own thing and do what you yeah. feel like you're called to do, do what you enjoy. And who cares? Like if you, you know, like for instance, I do this podcast and there's plenty of podcasts that get way more listens than I do. And I'm like, you know what? Like it has to, it, that doesn't, that doesn't need to matter. Cause like I enjoyed, like I enjoyed just meeting people like you talking to you about your work, talking about different things. And it's like, that should be like, that. that's, that's enough. Like that's satisfying enough. And so I think it's a good reminder to anybody, just like whatever you're doing, like just enjoy it and do it for what mm-hmm. you feel like you're being called to do. It takes pressure off too. Cause yeah, it, the moment you start comparing is the moment you will feel like a failure because somebody's always better than you. Yeah. You know, the best authors who ever lived thought somebody else was better than they were. So yeah, just there, if you use people as a measuring stick to improve, that's one thing that's, I think that's, that's growing. We should do that in all right. areas of life. If you're comparing your, your end results to other people, you're just setting yourself up for misery. Oh yeah. Totally. I saw, I saw something the other day that was like, don't compare your first draft of a book to somebody's published copy. I'm like, I know that's a cliche thing, but it's like, that is pretty true. Like, you know, I've been writing my sample chapters and I'm like, you know, combing through with the, with, you know, fine tooth comb and trying to make sure that it's as good as I can be. And I'm like, I have no idea like what the expectation is for a first draft to even be like every time that I've written anything, I've wanted it to be the best that it could be. But I've also never like in journalism, it's like you, you finish the story then you send it off then you do the next one. And it's like, I never really think about it. And this I'm like sitting on it and thinking about it and overthinking it. And it's like, I need to just trust that what I've written is what God has told me to, to write. And I think yeah. that's true. Of a yeah. Lot yeah. Of well, one of the uh, the last questions I always like to ask people, uh, the show is called In No Hurry. And so the, the idea of that was kind of came out of this idea that, you know, we're constantly living these busy lives. And you kind of touched on this a little bit, you know, kind of like maybe this virus will help us slow, slow down a little bit. But the, the idea was that, you know, there's a, a need, I think, for us to kind of just pull back a little bit and just kind of recalibrate and relax and, and not allow ourselves to be stretched too thin whenever you get into busy seasons of your life and what are some things that you go to in order to, to slow down, relax and have fun? Yeah, it's, uh, I never thought of myself as somebody who was overly stressed or I didn't love busyness. Um, but I have found myself in the last few years as the kind of person who, when I'm not doing something, I feel like I kind of get jittery. I'm like, oh, I think that's an addiction. It's like I'm having, it's like I'm having busyness withdrawal. So that's yeah. that's been a present, kind of a very present struggle of mine. Um, for me, it really, really helps to focus on the other people in my life who I need to have time with and who need to have time with me. So I have two daughters, um, who are 14 and 11. Uh, I'm engaged and getting married in July. So. Uh, there, you know, just those three people. And then there's, if I look at my calendar and I'm like, I have not hung out with certain friends in six weeks. Well, that's not, that's not great. Right. So the, the intentional making of time, like I need this evening with my kids, I'm going to go spend the evening with my fiance or take a lunch break and, and, you know, meet somebody and, and just kind of those kinds of things are, are the most beneficial ways for me to slow down. Because it's things like reading or watching shows are good. Um, but I usually arrive at those when I'm exhausted, which means I, because you don't need to give your best energy to Netflix. You right. do need to give good energy to loved ones. And so that takes, I think that takes more discipline for me because right. it's when I still have energy to be productive, but I'm like, nope, I got to go got to go play with my kids. I need to go to a movie with my kids. I need to, you know, sit and have dinner and put my phone away. That has been the most helpful and just kind of intentionally as well as I know how pushing away the, the distractions. Um, and, and I do find that really refreshing. Like I come back from that and I'm able to, when the time comes, get back into work or into writing and feel good about it and feel like I, I have some balance in my life. And like I've, I've cared for the people who need to be cared for and they've fed into me. Like they, they love me in return. This is not just a one way street. And so I, for me, it's, it's that as much as anything is an active, I'm going to carve out good chunks of time for the people who matter most. All right. Well, Barnabas, that's, that's great. I love, I love that. 
so you've got your own podcast, the happy rants. Um, where else can people get in touch with you or follow you? Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm on, I'm on most of the social media. I'm on the old people's social media platform. So Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, I'm not on any of the Snapchats or TikToks or whatever. You're not on TikTok. Okay. I'm not. <laughs> Sorry to disappoint. I know people were waiting with bated breath. Um, so yeah, you can find me on any of those. I'm most active on Twitter. Um, it's a, I, I love it. It's a great place to interact. Um, and then barnabaspiper.com is my website. So sometimes there's articles or blog posts. It's where the podcast is. Um, there's a contact me thing there if anybody wanted to send me an email or whatever. So that's uh, that's the other best place. And can people pre-order your book or should they wait till October when it's out or how should they go about? I don't know if it's up for pre-order yet. It should be relatively soon. Um, they are... Uh, We've just finalized a cover design, so usually within a few weeks after that is when it gets up on, on the the website. But usually like five six months pre release, so I would guess April May is when it'll get up there. But yeah, as soon as people see it out there, I mean I'll share that it's available. Um, and then yeah, pre ordering is great. Pre ordering is actually so little behind the scenes. Pre ordering is very helpful because sometimes you just there's a book that's released, and then the day afterwards Amazon is like waiting on more stock. That's because nobody pre-ordered it, so they only had four in stock. Whereas yeah. if pre with pre-orders, they look at it and they're like, there's going to be a pace to these sales. So it's very beneficial if you guys do that for any author, all the authors that you like, pre-order their books. And leave reviews on Goodreads or Amazon because that does help yes. too. So. Yes, that too. Same with podcasts. So leave leave reviews. <laughs> listen, to, listen to the Happy Rant. Look, give them a five-star review. Listen to this podcast. Give us a five-star review. It really does help. I mean, it, yes. it feels weird to ask for it, but it does help because it tells people, hey, this is a show that – is worth listening to, or this is a book worth, worth reading. So, uh, but I, I can, I can vouch help my unbelief is a, is a phenomenal book. I recommend it, uh, to anybody who is listening to this podcast. It's, it's been one of, it's probably one of my favorites I've read in the last several years. So, um, I'm excited about your new book. I'm excited about your new book coming out in, in, in October. So that, that's my birthday month. So I may ask for it as a birthday gift or something. <laughs> Well, send send me your address. I'm sure I can make I can make that happen. I can get you a copy. All right, perfect. Well, Barnabas, thanks for joining the show, and good luck to you as you as you and your church continue to respond to the growing needs in the Nashville area. And you know, I'm sure that 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 presence is not going unnoticed by the people of the of the, of the town. And I'm hoping I I I, I really hope that I can have some time to get down to Nashville and just volunteer with somebody. My, my schedule is super busy this, this spring, and I hate to say it because it sounds like a cop-out, but I'm gone a lot of the week now mm-hmm. in Indiana, and then the weekends are booked up too. So I'm hoping that I can get to, to Nashville to volunteer because that town is so near and dear to my wife and I because we right. go down there you know, all the time for dinner or just hanging out. <laughs> yeah, whatever. You're just up the road. Yeah. All right. Well, Barnabas, thanks for joining us, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Yeah, thank you. Well, my spring just got a whole lot more clear with all the cancellations and everything that's happening. So I do hope that I can get down to volunteer in Nashville. I just don't know what kind of travel restrictions we're going to have in place in the next couple of weeks. So we'll have to see about that. But I really hope you guys enjoyed this conversation with Barnabas. I just think he's so wise and I really enjoyed his thoughts on the different topics that we talked about. Next week, we'll have author Jamie Sumner on to talk about her new book, which is about being the parent of a special needs child. I'm really excited to share that with you guys. And I hope you guys will tune back in for that one. In the meantime, if you need to contact me at all, you guys know where to find me. I'm Cole Claiborne on pretty much any social media platform. Would love to connect with you guys. Also, if you would take the time to leave a five-star review, it really does help let people know that this is a show that they might enjoy as well. So thank you guys for listening. I really appreciate everybody that's tuning in each week. We're going to keep this show on its normal schedule despite everything that's going on. So I hope that this can at least provide some normalcy both in my life and hopefully yours. So I really appreciate you guys tuning in. It means a lot. Stay safe out there. Try to find some time to relax and not be in a hurry. And we'll see you next week.